Well, perhaps I can start the interview by uh, asking you a question. How do I avoid that happening to me? <laughs> right. Yes. Right, Dad. Don't write a happy album, right? Ah. If you think things are getting personally better for you. Yeah, don't allow anyone to know. <laughs> yeah. But especially don't put it on record, celebrate it and have an album. Don't call the album Start the Party when the last album was called Hope. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details if you're struggling to lose weight you've probably heard about weight loss medications like wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you meet plush care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey if you qualify they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home to get started visit plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to Sapnin Podcast. Sapnin! Sapnin! You are listening to episode 218 of Sapnin Podcast featured myself, Sean Smith, and my good friend, Morgan Richards. Yes, it's me, Morgan Richards, and this isn't a press corpse, but a punk shit melody That'll make you laugh, cry, smile, and die. Okay, okay. That, oh, that last oh, bit okay. might have been a bit, a bit extreme. I'm just riled up. I'm so excited for this, Sean. Also, I think it's pronounced core, not corpse. Anyway, this week's guest is anti-flag bassist and all-round punk rock legend, Chris Number 2. Chris 2, or as he should be known in Wales, Chris Die. Yes, Chris Two, Chris Doss, Chris Die, Chris Barker, whatever you want to call him, has jumped his way into punk rock history books since joining Anti-Flag. Or Anti-Flag, we get into that in just a bit, don't you worry, on bass and vocals in 1998. One of the most passionate, political, social injustice fighting bands in generations, I believe. And in 2023, it now celebrates their 30th anniversary. Wow. Three whole decades of anti-flag. They're touring more than ever and coinciding it with the release of their new album, Lies They Tell Our Children, featuring guest appearances from a number of their friends and influences from Rise Against to Bad Religion, Silverstein, Killswitch Engage, Pink Shift, and more. But throughout this conversation, Chris really pulls back the curtain behind a lot of things from their storybook career. Some of them are extremely funny. Some of it is damn right scary. We're going to learn a lot on this episode. And it's such an important band to many people in punk rock for these last couple of generations, Sean. But what's crazy to hear is the similarities you've had in the industry with the band behind the scenes with booking agents and stuff like that. 
Yes, we are exactly the same. The blackout is exactly the same as anti-flag. Um, <laughs> no, 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 not at all. But yes, we did have the same booking agent and stuff, and we do get into it in this conversation. Good to find out that the weirdest venues you ever played is a sex club. I'll say no more. I'll say no more. You've got to listen on to uh, find out what happens there. But yeah, what a fucking absolutely brilliant, brilliant chat with Chris. People who's influenced him, some of his favorite bands, the more backlash he's ever got. And good vibes only after 9 p.m. Yeah, yes. That's a strict rule that you're going to hear about. And literally, we get into everything from how Chris originally joined the band to seeing their history as three chapters Go in as long as they have without breaking up, which is an achievement in itself. His on-stage relationship with Justin, switching off hockey injuries, uh, some stories from Billy Bragg and Billy Joe Armstrong, and he even starts this episode with some hot takes and fiery comments that you're going to hear in just a little bit. But before we get into the conversation itself, if you listen to this and you're against capitalism and you uh, <laughs> hate giving the man your money, fuck places like Starbucks. Why don't you give us that cash instead to help run this podcast and keep it going each and every week via our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash sapnin. Yes, we can promise that absolutely 0% of that money goes to the man because it comes to the boys. <laughs> P.S. That might have, I might not be able to guarantee that because PayPal takes a cut. Uh, Patreon takes a cut. Um, so yeah, by the time any, anyway, patreon.com forward slash happening. Check it out there. Also, if you enjoy this episode, check out other episodes or give this a share. Please, please, please. It is detriment to the growth of the podcast that you please, please share it. If you've enjoyed it, let us know any thoughts, questions you have for the future for guests. Get in touch with us at Sapnin Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and we made a TikTok, but we don't fucking bother with it. At Sapnin Pod, at S A W P E N I N P O D. Without any further ado, this is Chris Dose on episode 218 of Sapnin Podcast. Sapnin! Sapnin! <laughs> ah, I'm losing my mind. I'm losing my mind. Gonna make this really easy for you. Sapnin! Sapnin! Fuck Dave Lombardo. <laughs> oh! Just wow. Sapnin, Sapnin, Sapnin. Yeah. I, wow. Uh, uh, I, I actually love Dave Lombardo and, and uh, uh, had a really incredible experience where, you know, when before we started rolling here, we were talking about sharing a booking agent. Well, one time that that same booking agent put us on a festival in Spain where we played after Slayer. Oh, good luck. <laughs> so the entirety of us like warming up, obviously Slayer is Slayering. I just was behind the curtain and uh, Dave Lombardo is playing drums, a hero of mine. And then, you know, it's like we have to play our shitty songs after that. Like it makes no sense to me. Um but it was really great because I think it was like the first tour that when Dave Lombardo rejoined Slayer. So it was like a it was a very palpable uh, moment in their their lives as Slayer. And so 
uh, I had a friend growing up. He was the best guitar player in our town, and he loved Slayer, of course, as good guitar players would do uh, at that time. And so I got in. I got this. I took the set list from Dave's drums after the show. Had them sign it. Meanwhile, it's like we're supposed to be preparing to go on. <laughs> but I was like, no, I got some work to do. Uh, meeting Dave Lombardo and, and uh, hanging out with Slayer. So yeah, I should really explain <laughs> what's, um, why. Yeah, why you went with fuck Dave Lombardo? Um, just beforehand, I explain. Dave Lombardo said Sapnin, and that's what I judge everybody by now. So, um, Dave, if you're listening, and I know you listen every week. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke! Um, our guest this week is Chris Two of the mighty Anti-Flag, Anti-Flag. How do you feel about the British pronunciation of Anti-Flag? To be honest, I love it. You know, um, uh, it, it's... it's um colonialization and imperialism be damned. It's also how they say it in Canada, and I enjoy that there as well, too. I love that we're starting with some really hot takes no one, like, really left field <laughs> let hot takes no one was expecting. Uh, I'm I loving it, love but it. how are you doing? How's things at the moment, Chris? Uh, you've been telling us before, and Pat's in the room practicing drums behind you. What's, what's just going on day to day? How's things at the moment? Yeah, things are great. We um, we hit the road here in the U.S. Um, in just like eight days or something like that. Um, so we're kind of in that. Remember how to play. We took the holidays off. So yeah, it's just it's just about kind of getting back into the swing of things. But um, but we feel great. I mean, we just released our thirteenth record. Twenty twenty three is thirty years of the band. Um, a lot of really wild shit happening in our world um, that we never imagined. So um, the fact that there is still a place that will have us and host us, the fact that anybody comes to the shows and cares um, is always remarkable to us. You know, truthfully, we would be a band and be trying these same ideas with or without an audience. So <laughs> we're just grateful that there's one there. It makes it less awkward, you know, but uh <laughs> But yeah, so so it will be a really busy year for us, and it has started quite busy. We Justin and I were in Germany for the uh, release week of the album, doing a bunch of promo and acoustic shows, and um, just kind of connecting with a part of the world that's really important to us. But um, but yeah, we get after it right here, right off the jump. So we're excited. Oh wow! Well, we appreciate you uh, taking the time for this uh, in the in this little in between everything. But yeah, there's so much we want to talk about throughout this conversation and as you mentioned there 2023 is the 30th anniversary of anti-flag and you've been in the band since 1999 but i'm sure just kind of looking at that statistic and having a moment to reflect on everything you've done it's crazy to think that the band is entering three decades now and that there's just so much in your back catalog and memories to accompany it yeah, I joined I joined the band September 98 um when I was 15 years old and um you know they they had quite a following in Pittsburgh and so I I kind of was a little duped into believing I was joining a famous band and then uh <laughs> we drove a few miles away and there was nobody there. So <laughs> it, it, uh, it was a it was a, a lesson learned very quickly but truthfully, you know, this is all I ever wanted to do and the passion for it will change um, and it will be redirected into certain ways. Sometimes it's really hyper-focused on the music. Sometimes it's hyper-focused on the intention or the politics or the agenda of the band. Sometimes 
members fall in and out of love with this thing, that kind of perspective you only get when you're banging your head against the wall for as long as we have been. So I really chop up the band's life into like three decades and, and, and almost exactly 10 year periods where, you know, the first five years before I was in the band, they were so committed to playing any and everywhere they could. Um, and that was what was inspiring to me as a kid, that there was this band in a shitty town like Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where there is not a lot of opportunity. There's not a lot of um, economic infrastructure we had. And you have many places like this in the UK where the industry left and the, the town was left to... to uh, Hello. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Coal industry. Exactly. It's fucking gone. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, forgotten. And because of that, you know, we had immense amounts of the populations of Pittsburgh leave. You, you get cool and interesting things like everybody loves the Pittsburgh Steelers all around the world because everybody left Pittsburgh in the seventies. And, uh, and then now you have the Steelers bar in Rome or whatever. That's exciting. But it also, if you're products of family members who lost their livelihoods in that, it really changes you and shapes you. And I think that that's why a lot of the art that comes out of Pittsburgh, like the band anti-flag is of a political tinge is of an empathetical tinge because we, we interacted with so many people who lost their dignity and their livelihood because a corporation decided to make a little bit more money. That's enough to make you look at the world through a different set of lenses. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, that first 10 years of the band and then I came in in the latter half, I was just getting up to speed. They, they had traveled a lot. They were great songwriters. They were great performers. I was 15 and needed to learn how to do all of it, you know? Um, and then there's a second chapter where I believe like we really hit our stride. We figure out the type of song we want to write. We make the terror state for blood and empire kind of like tentpole albums for the band, but then we work ourselves to death and kind of decide that this thing is challenging. And, uh, sometimes it, da it damages our personal relationships. It damages our relationships with one another. And then I think, you know, 2015, we really had a reckoning within the band where we decided to refocus our energy, fall back in love with it, not force albums anymore. There was a period where, and you know this well in Europe with the festival scene, it's like, you need a new album to get the, the show. And so you start creating for somebody else, not for yourself. And, um, and uh, so, yeah, I really think that where we're at now is in a really healthy and positive place where we believe in ourselves more than ever. We believe in the intention of the band more than ever. And unfortunately, it is a quite an arduous time in the global society where you see this separation between the wealthy and the poor manifesting its way into everything, a, a heightened amount of racism, a heightened amount of homophobia and transphobia and, and Islamophobia and, you know, the refugee crisis, the, the crisis of the climate. Now, it's all coming to a head because people have chosen profit over humanity. And so I think that there is a moral necessity for us to write these songs and be this band at this point. But I also think that 
a lot of it is just, you know, those lessons that we just kind of recap, like we just want to leave behind a document that says we all tried and um, kind of a long winded answer to your jump off question, but um, <laughs> oh, it's great. Yeah. That's where we're at. You know, thank you for trying. Cause fucking somebody's got to, because I feel like, I feel like nowadays, because at the moment, I think everybody in the UK should be outside the houses of parliament fucking ripping the MPs out of there, right? Because of the state of everything that's going on. Brexit, the fact that people got conned into believing Brexit would be a good idea. <laughs> All of the COVID loans, spending $36 billion on track and trace and having nothing to show for it when Germany did one for £800,000. But I think what's happened now is with social media, people think, oh, but I've tweeted about that, so that should be enough, rather than going and doing something about it. Have you seen social media do that? Do you think it's affecting protest and people getting out there and doing more stuff? I think that all of those things are double-edged swords and beneficial and exploitative at the same time. You know, um, um, there's an argument to make that, that artists that make money via capitalism, but are hyper critical of it, uh, much like anti-flag and, and many other protest artists in the world are both benefiting from a system of oppression, but also victims of a system of oppression. And so I think that unfortunately, so many of these issues, the intersectionality of all of those things that you mentioned is real. And unfortunately, what social media or what even just like the um, the idea that activism can be done on an individual level. So I gave some money to a GoFundMe or I signed a petition online or I retweeted X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I've done my civic duty. You know, that's a flawed ideology. I think that, that so much of our power comes in our collectivity and those tools are, are, are valuable in, in organizing and bringing people together. But until there is that human element, that, that reality of people doing what you're talking about, boots on the street, calling for accountability, we'll be kind of trapped in this cycle of we're challenging the powerful using their systems of power. And that's not really, um, that's not a battle that's easily won. And, and, um, you see it in other parts of the world. You see it in the global South where a protest movement happens and people flood the streets and they demand accountability and demand empathy and uh, they win. And so uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that, that there is this groundswell and especially you see it around climate activism. Arguably that's the most pressing issue of our times because uh we can't we can't eradicate exploitative uh, systems of economics uh, if we're all fucking dead. So yeah, it's difficult. It does make it a little bit more a little bit more yeah. difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, that is true. But I'm I'm glad that to hear anti flag are in a place now that you're looking at things a, a little bit differently, kind of behind the scenes as well. And I feel like. You're a band where I'm sure like a lot of it can feel quite intense. And there's not a lot of people these days who have been going for as long as you have, who haven't had like some sort of hiatus or a breakup or kind of really falling out along the way. I mean, what do you put that 
down to? Do you think it's just a, a testament of you all being on the same page for, for, for so long? Or is that just not never being an option that you've wanted to step away from the band for a while and come back or anything like that? Well, um, that's a great question. Um, I try not to listen to the cynical voice in my head. Often. <laughs> um, uh, in this instance, this is one of the most, this is one of the times it's loudest in my life is when I compare what we do to others. Um, and I get a little frustrated with, look, I, and, I've, and I, I'm trying not to shit talk my friends because I have a lot of friends who bailed on rock and roll for five years, 10 years, and then came back and enjoyed this miraculous success story. You know, then there's a band like Anti-Flag who never stopped and continued to bang our head against the wall. And we, you know, we'll be on the festival with that band, a festival that two years prior, we played a, you know, a great plot. And then all of a sudden a band reunites and it's like fucking headlining it or something. And I'm like, this is a band who, when they broke up, no one gave a fuck about. Now all of a sudden is catapulted into this place because they starved the audience of their art. And so again, I try not to be cynical about that shit. I love when my friends are successful and, and, and um, garner that type of attention. I think it's important. And a lot of times it's because they were ahead of their time and they didn't enjoy the fruits of their labor in that moment. And then people came around to it. Sometimes it's you. And this is again, listening to that cynical voice. Sometimes it's a business model to break up and come back. And that to me sucks. But I would attest what we do in Anti-Flag and the reason we've been able to not have that happen is that we live in Pittsburgh and it's economically affordable. We didn't, you know, in the lean years of the band, which there are many and it ebb and flows and some, you know, punk and activism and things that Anti-Flag aligns itself with do come in contact with the mainstream at certain times in this cyclical nature of music. And so there are moments when we're riding high and then there's moments where we're riding low. And because again, we live in Pittsburgh, it's got a low cost of living, one of the lowest costs of living in the country, in the U S um, it's easier to come home and chill when no one gives a fuck about the art mm. that you're creating. Whereas if you live in New York or LA, you got to go get a fucking job, you know? Um, and so I understand that many people have had that instance happen and uh, we've been fortunate enough not to, but by the same token, I think that regardless of those interactions with the pop of the culture and uh, when people are looking for activist music or not, um, we would be doing this no matter what, um, even if it was just like surmised or, smaller version of what it is today um but so so yeah i mean again uh, like like i said like it's awesome when when people miss the moment and then they come back and they get their flowers uh, i i don't want it to sound like i'm being an asshole about that kind of stuff it, it is just it can be frustrating to look around and say man like what's the reward for like not giving up <laughs> versus <laughs> the reward for giving up is sometimes much higher. I've never looked at it like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, truthfully it is because 
when uh, you know that anti-flag is going to come to the UK once every two years or whatever, there's some complacency in that. Or I'll catch them next time, you know? And then there's the band that fucking goes away for 10 years and you're like, well, I better go see that because I might not ever see it again. I'm, I'm just grateful we're getting close enough to dying that people might be like, oh, we should go see Anti-Flag before they die. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the name of the next tour. Come and see yeah, us before we die tour. Uh, <laughs> I think we're dying tour. Yeah, fucking good. Yeah. Just four open caskets on stage. Just <laughs> wait to get in them, yeah. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> the not many wow. chances left to her. Yeah, the not yeah. many chances left. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. We booked 60 dates. There's a good chance we won't get to all of them. Wow. <laughs> you don't have the same booking agent anymore. I know he moved uh, agencies, right? Yeah. So um, we kind of got lost in that shuffle. Um, and um, and and Sean Golding, who was our agent over there for, for a really long time, is still a great friend. He changed our lives. He introduced us to European touring properly. Yeah, he's still a great friend, still someone we love. He did it. He had a moment of reckoning and um, reconciliation with booking and um, took a moment to deal with some family stuff. And so in that, obviously, we needed to book tours and work. And so we had to kind of shift nimbly. But I, I love him. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we interact in some space again. Yeah, yeah. Me, me too. Me too. No, I, I, I bring it up because um, for us, um, he would randomly book us shows in Europe that were miles <laughs> apart. And I was just wondering if you ever... Because one, one, 14 years ago, I looked it up yesterday. 14 years ago, um, the Blackout supported Anti-Flag in Germany. But yeah, we were in somewhere like fucking Brighton in the UK the day before. And he was like, oh, there's a space on the Anti-Flag show. Do you want to do it? I tell you what, I'll put you in for it. And we were like, Sean, how are we going to get there? <laughs> <laughs> and we had a joke that he must have just been throwing darts at the European board going, ah, this is where they're going to go. I truthfully believe it's because he's an American. Yeah. And we are just so used to driving everywhere and going any and everywhere to make the thing happen um, because ne we never bat an eyelash at it. Um, you know, we're just like, oh, yeah, this shows all of a sudden a fly in in the middle of the tour. Fine. That's what we got to do, you know. <laughs> and, so, and then so many of our friends who are, are, are European or English, they'll be like, yo, you're I looked at your routing. What the fuck happened? And I'm like. Oh yeah, a, a ten-hour drive is nothing for us. You know, like we cut our teeth going Pittsburgh to New York, which is eight hours. Pittsburgh to Boston is ten. Um, you know, Detroit is seven. Like we're consistently doing long hauls, and we were doing them in a van driving ourselves. So all of a sudden, when someone's like, "Yo, you know, um, this is this is it. It's a ten-hour, twelve-hour drive across Germany to get to Spain." All yeah. of a sudden, it's like, "Well, Sean." Um, I hope that you uh, take a geography uh, class at some point, but, uh, but yeah, that does, that still, that happened to us so much uh, on the last tour he booked, which was our summer festival run that we just finished last year with the gravity and the intensity of travel that it was coming out of the pandemic that first two weeks. We almost missed every show to start the, the wow. tour. Yeah, it was like wow. literally the, the first show was Hellfest. We showed up at eleven thirty. We were on stage at midnight. The, <laughs> like, that, and that happened to us like 
five times in the first week of shows. And, uh, and then the remaining seven weeks of that tour worked out. Okay, now. But I love the fact you have that attitude of being like, oh, it's fine if we've got to drive 10 hours, but then there's literal fans over here who won't go to gigs if they're not literally at their doorstep. If they've got to drive half an hour to the next town over or anything, they, you get a complaint on Twitter. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, I mean, that is happening over here now at a higher rate than it's ever happened. And again, I mean, I don't, there is a noose around everyone's neck in the world currently. I mean, the economic constraints of being alive in 2023 are so insane that I understand it when people are like, yo, a, I'm buying a show, a ticket to a show that can be anywhere from 15 to 30 bucks. And then some fucking asshole all of a sudden decides that they need 50% of that ticket price for a facility fee or a, a handling fee or whatever Ticketmaster or whoever the mucky mucks of the world are doing. And then you've got to drive to that show that's an hour away. Like it is so insane how expensive everything is in this moment. So I, I understand and I empathize with that, but I also know that like, this is all we know how to do. Um, and, and, and I promise that we've cut as many corners as we can possibly cut while still being able to deliver human beings to perform the songs for real. <laughs> like I can, I can do it much cheaper with a laptop, but if you want a human <laughs> to make it, like it's gonna, we need help, you know, like, and so, and, and not to mention you got the double X on this conversation because you have a train system in your country that people can get from place to place a lot easier than they can here where we have no infrastructure of public transport. You know, everybody's fending for themselves. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In that vein, 
What's the weirdest venue you've ever played? And it's really interesting. I want to say that we just played it. Um, Justin and I on our acoustic run in Europe, we played a sex club in Berlin. Yes. <laughs> it was called the, it was called Sage Club, but it also doubles as the Kit Kat Club. We did a beautiful, intimate circle of people around us, acoustic concert. And there were paintings of people having sex on the walls in like <laughs> a day glow, like, you know, almost like a, a velvet painting uh, where it was glow in the dark. And one of them was like a minotaur, half man, half beast getting a blow job. And um, everyone's favorite. Yeah, it was a, it was a metaphor for something. I'm not quite sure what it was, uh, but then like to double and triple down on it being the weirdest venue of all time, the anti-flag acoustic performance ends and two death metal bands perform uh, about an hour each. Uh, so we finished at 10 and then death metal played from 10 PM to midnight. And then Justin and I took over as guest DJs. And, uh, <laughs> And so I just did the only appropriate thing I knew how to do, which was open with YMCA. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> just, to, just to really bring it all full circle as to be the weirdest show of all time. But yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. oh I, be I bet the death metal fans loved a bit of village people. You know oh. what? It brought the house down. I'll be honest with you. Uh, <laughs> not, not to mention it is the only club in Europe that has pyro in it it's got a i don't know some type of sculpture of a dragon and there's a button you can push and a projectile fires fire from the dragon's mouth and i learned this the hard way as i walked into the room and somebody tried to scare me with the fire and they did a great job of doing it oh my god how have i never used to love any before that's for two reasons, for rock music and for it being a sex club. I, I would have viewed it one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Well, well that's why we love hearing these uh, the, these random things on the podcast. But speaking of uh, the, the fun side of playing live as well, like I've seen Anti-Flag a few times, but one of the things I've always enjoyed about seeing photos of your performances is that with you especially, Chris, is that there's always seems to be snapshots come out of you either playing in the middle of the year because you've jumped so high or you've gotten yourself in some weird flexible position and i'm sure <laughs> that over the years you've looked back at photos and just thought a how have i managed that or b what the hell's going on there yeah that's funny i i think that like so much of the show is allowing us to feel as if we are committed to the communication of the idea and my favorite bands and my favorite art has consistently put itself in harm's way to create that and so um very early on in my life i decided that if i ever climb on something or down something i jump off of it and refuse to gingerly crawl down from said thing and so putting that kind of and there's like a lot of disruption to the show like i love not setting up the same way twice 
so that the gear is a little fucked up and I've got to work a little bit harder. Um, moments when things break on stage and my intensity level rises because it is uncomfortable or, or a, a moment that's never happened before. That's where I scrape a lot of my joy out of the rock performance. So I think that because of that, you know, obviously people document them, those moments with, with photos and stuff. And, you know, I'm curious as to what my shelf life is. You know, I had a, uh, I, I, I'm old now. I had a knee injury this year playing hockey. Somebody hit my knee, blew my MCL up, completely tore it. I was like down for six months of rehab and all kinds of crazy shit. Now I'm back. I feel better than ever. And so I'm like, well, kind of this is like a second lease. But I also know that once you start deteriorating in that way, maybe another one's around the corner. So um, we'll see how it goes. But, um, but yeah, truthfully, like I... I just want to do it as long as it's fun. And um, as long as I feel as if I can present these ideas in a way that people understand that I care about them, I can't make them care about them, but I can hopefully demonstrate our passion for it. And, and, and hope that that allows people to understand some semblance of where we're coming from or what we're trying to say, you know, you, you make records, you perform shows, you do all this stuff. And then the media, immediately once it's shared, it's no longer yours. It's out of your control. And how people respond to that or what they take from that, um, that's no longer up to me. I can just try to perform it or sing it or do it in a compelling way that allows people to at least say like, well, I, I might think that this is fucking shit, but that at least was performed in a passionate way. They believe what they're saying. Was there ever any performers who influenced the style um, that you play and the way you move? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the clash inspire everything that anti-flag does. Um, you know, aesthetically speaking, I, I, I connect so much with, there's a sense where they get out of their own way and they're okay with saying the thing that they want to say. Like, uh, I love Bob Dylan too, but I'm not a poet. And I learned very early on that I can't speak in that type of metaphor. It's not fulfilling for me whenever I do try to do it or I do, you know, stumble into it. Um, but Joe Strummer, Mick Jones, they've always been able to just articulate, even if it is in a simple way, articulate it so that it, it connects with me. And so that's a, that's a major influence on the writing and the performing. Rage Against the Machine is the best live oh. band of all time. And so yep. any type of comparable situation where you just believe in the power of the band, that is, is you know, we chased for a bit. And, you know, this is kind of going back to talking about like some of the darker moments of this 30 years of anti-flag where... I remember being on warp tours or being on early festivals that John Golding was booking uh, and they were 15 hours apart. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I remember comparing ourselves to other people and thinking, Oh, well we need more amps or we need a pad or whatever. And then in 2008, Rage Against the Machine reunited and took anti-flag on tour again. And there's one 412 
and two eight by 10 bass cabs and a normal drum kit. And it's the loudest, most powerful show I've ever seen. And then I realized, well, well, fuck it. Let's just be the loudest, most powerful show we can be. We don't need a tool. And so, yeah, I think that greatly influenced us. But yeah, also like there are things that I've seen that I don't like. (laughs) And uh, often a lot of it is, oh, somebody climbed up that really cool thing and they had a really awesome moment. And then they clearly got scared and (laughs) had a a homie come and rescue them or whatever. And I'm like, well, I don't want that to be me. And so that's why I'm jumping off of all of that dumb shit because I, you know, I, I saw something and I didn't like it, you know? You can easily be influenced by things that are antithetical to what your goals are as a performer or as a songwriter or whatever. Yeah. Oh, nice. I've always found that you and Justin have uh, an interesting dynamic between the two of you on stage as well, because it's almost like you share frontman responsibilities because you're very much a showman in your own right and you do a lot of the kind of speeches in between songs. But I was wondering, like, with a lot of the kind of political messages you're, you're trying to say at these shows, like, do you go into something knowing that, oh, I'm going to talk about this on stage today? Or does it just kind of come to you in the moment, depending how you're feeling, how the show is, what's going on? I mean, could give us a little insight into that side of things? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So um, Justin and I are playing off of each other the entire show. And, and we kind of have to... Um, because there was a while where we both wouldn't shut up or we both <laughs> were talking over each other and it just was confusing and not cohesive. And um, obviously, we're both very passionate people and we're both trying to explain things in a way that hopefully makes sense to others. But there became a, there, and perhaps even a level of competition between the two that pushed us to want to get the last word, you know, you know, like you, you you would know this Sean from being in a band, like the song ends. And then there's just one person who's like, meow, meow. Another, like, it's like, (laughs) whose last thumbprint is is there at the end. And uh, that's not necessarily great. That's ego. And you have to get the fuck out of your own way. And so, so very early on, we tried, and that gets into the second part of your question. We've, tried to make space for each other. So if anything, that is the conversation we have is like, yo, I'm going to talk before this song, or I would like, I have something to say today. I'd like the break before song X, Y, or Z, you know, for the most part, more than ever, I try not to script the show or what we're saying. However, that has led to some, shitty moments where you say something that's fucking dumb or not exactly what you want to say. So there is a little bit of thought to it. I found that actually, like if I write down, even if it's like typing it into my phone, just kind of write a synopsis of what I want to say. I tend to be better at hitting those points um, during the show. And Justin, I think is, is a different, he's a little bit different. He likes to kind of calculate the way he's going to say it and what he's going to say. And um, again, you know, it's about not like, obviously there are moments that are tremendously real and spontaneous and of spontaneity. You know, there's a fight during the show and we break it up. The things that are coming out of our mouths aren't 
you know, it's not like we planted those kids in there to, to <laughs> fight or do whatever. Oh, no, not another fight for the 30th show in a row. <laughs> exactly. with, the guys, with the guys who have got passes, who just happen to come on the bus every night. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Yeah. They got passes and, and, and uh, pads on, yeah. <laughs> gloves. Where did you get those gloves from? Yeah. <laughs> But at the same time, there are, you know, especially like the last run, there was a, a discussion about the war in Ukraine. And so in a, in a, in such a important moment, you want to make sure that A, you say the things clearly and articulate, but B, you want to make sure that you say the thing you mean. And so um, sometimes there is a bit of like, massaging of that or, or or i shouldn't say practice but like a a work through of what that's going to be or look like and so so it's a little bit of both you know um but um but for the most part i think the biggest learning curve for us was like having that discussion pre-show hey what you did last night worked really well try that again maybe don't say this <laughs> you know <laughs> and like we critique each other and give each other space to figure it out have you ever been have you ever been in any um dangerous situations with the bands um yeah, because man. i uh the the blackout once played a show in Sw- it was either switzerland or poland and 300 skinheads turned up because i think they thought we were a racist band when they turned up and i had a blonde big blonde fringe big helmet of lego hair i think they soon realized that uh, we weren't the band they were expecting. Uh, have you had much backlash at shows? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, going back to an early question for you um, about the internet, I think the internet has actually quelled a lot of the violence that we have interacted with in our lives because now people just write on the internet that they hate us and they think that they did it. And I'm like, well, this is a much better place to be and then having to flee <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> before, yeah, before that was our, that was our option run away. You know, um, you know, you don't exist in a band called anti-flag and tour in the Southern U S in 2002 in a post nine 11 America and get out of there unscathed. Um, yeah, that's true. Wow. Mm. It was a very difficult time in the band's life. Um, not a single show happened without incident. And, um, and, you know, you got to understand that people were mourning and, and nationalism was being used by the powerful to rally interest and stoke the flame of war for the, the impending invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. And so you didn't go anywhere in the U S and not see an American flag either donned on an SUV with a sticker also of guns and said, come and take it or a fucking, you know, on every street, you know, the cops drove by and got standing ovations. And then there's a little band called anti-flag who's saying that war isn't the answer to this problem and that um, nationalism and patriotism are being used to manipulate and control the people of the United States. And that message wasn't met with open hearts and minds and ears. And so, you know, Florida, we were chased out of there and, you know, the bouncers during the show have turned 
to us, to face us and are flipping us off and spitting at us during the show. And those are the people who are getting paid to protect us. You know, uh, Texas, there was violence and, 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 you know, glass bottles at that time, it was before they had switched to plastic. And so, you know, it's like the scene in roadhouse where she's just flying, you know, like <laughs> it, it, it was, it was quite scary. And, 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 um, yeah. And so like, like I said, thankfully, you know, even at that time, people would, would harass everything like from the venue to, to the van, you know, whether it's spray painting the van, slashing the tires of the van, doing whatever they could do to disrupt the show. Um, they would do it, but you know, now you fast forward to today and somebody says something on Facebook about us being commies or whatever. And I'm just like, I'll take that all fucking day. And so I feel bad for young people who are growing up and creating art in this environment where everyone feels like they can just trash every aspect of what you do. It creates an environment where people are afraid to make statements. And so that is the goal of that type of, of trolling is to manipulate and, and fear monger people into just being milk toasts and saying whatever thing is not offensive to people. Um, but because we have that kind of arduous past and history and dealing with actual threats of violence for us, we're not afraid of it. Whenever, you know, somebody tells us they're going to, you know, the proud boys are protesting our show in Chicago, but they did it on the internet. And I'm like, cool. That's great. Like <laughs> the show happened with humans and people there. Like that, that was real, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's definitely um, a different moment that we're in. Um, which is also why I think that going back to your other question about like, even the activism on the internet, like I'm a little too old. So some of that doesn't feel real to me. It just feels superficial. And, 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 ha and but I do know that it is real and it is, affecting people and, and, and challenging people in different ways that I don't understand because I grew up in an era where it didn't exist. So I have both frames of perspective. Yeah. Yeah. It is crazy how much all of that changed, but something I did want to um, talk about, I mean, obviously you guys are always surrounding yourself, what's going on in the world, current affairs and all the tragedies and, and everything like that. And I'm sure it can be quite daunting sometimes just kind of looking at all that keeping up to date what's going on because it, it is a, a, a big part of you but is there anything you do to kind of distance yourselves sometimes or to have a break because i'm sure like you've learned to turn that off switch because it, it can it can be a, a very depressing really daunting to constantly see how bad the world is yeah i have two things um i, I play ice hockey it's the only place in the world where my brain truthfully shuts off. Part of it is self-preservation. Like don't die out there. Um, <laughs> part of it is just like, it's, it, it's moving quickly and it demands my attention. Like I will tell you, I've, I've played shows, really big shows and had really powerful moments happening. And I've thought to myself, did I pay the light bill or did, uh, you know, like, is this worth it? Like, are we losing this battle? You know, like the huge conversations of life will also come into play. And um, I never feel that way when I'm playing hockey. I consistently am just in that moment. So it is, it is very therapeutic to be able to turn off like that. 
And then my partner and I, we have a rule of good vibes only after 9 p.m., um, meaning that whatever television program you are, are watching or whatever, it, it has no drama. <laughs> it's a, it's a, usually that's something like Bob's Burgers or, you know, it's like really mindless. Um, and it helps, you know, it helps turn us off and then we can go to bed and, and you know, challenge ourselves with the real world during the day, the next day. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think those two things are important, but, but also what we do is fun. And, um, we are in an advantageous and a privileged place where with our activism, people clap for us. There are a lot of people who work at nonprofit or involved in activism on a ground level, and they never get to have that moment where people applaud or cheer or congratulate them on the work that they do. And so I think that's why you see Anti-Flag bring people on the stage to talk about the things that are important to them, but then also get a little bit of that love from the audience at the show, because it, it helps you have the strength to go into the next day and into the next day after that. And so Lastly, I think that the show itself, meeting the people in, the, in each of these cities and having them tell you that there is value to this and the, the communal aspect of punk rock is real and people can find themselves and find camaraderie and find the strength to live in a world um, that demands negativity, demands that we treat our neighbor as our enemy. It demands... Like, all of these issues that we face are consistently telling us we're not valuable and um, that's a dark place to be. So to have that couple mo couple hours of, of time at the show where that shit doesn't exist, that, that, that serves a really important purpose. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Welcome back to Two Judgy Girls. I'm Mary from the Bay. And I'm Courtney from LA. TJG is the podcast where we spill all the tea on your favorite reality TV shows, celebrity gossip, and everything in between. We're here to bring you our unfiltered opinions, hilarious commentary, and plenty of laughs along the way. We're two SDSU Delta Gamma sisters with a microphone and a whole lot of opinions. Each week, we dive headfirst into the wild world of reality television from Bravo to all the trash TV you could want. We break down the drama, dissect the latest scandals, and share our thoughts on everything from the jaw-dropping moments to the embarrassing antics. 
But that's not all. We're not here to just gossip. We're here to connect with you, the jurors, and share our love of all things pop culture. Whether we're dishing on the latest celebrity breakups, discussing our favorite guilty pleasure movies, or sharing embarrassing stories from our own lives, we promise to keep it real, keep it fun, and keep you coming back for more. Come judge with us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. And in terms of the actual songwriting itself, I mean, obviously the lyrics have got so much substance and things surrounding it. But over the years, have you or Justin or the rest of the band found ways to kind of cope with that in terms of trying to make the best possible song, but also having the message? Because as much as you want to get these thoughts and and feelings out there, you want to make the best song you can with hooks and yeah, yeah, melodies yeah. are in people's heads for days and, and stuff like that. Like, is there anything you've learned to kind of counterbalance it so you're not focusing on one side more than the other? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the most valuable thing we learned is that there's no right or wrong way to do it. And if you fail at it, you try again. Um, uh, I think that, that it is a, it frustrates me um, when I interact with people who treat the creation of art as this majorly daunting task. And I have a lot of friends and bands who will only write the 10 songs that they write for the album. And they fucking poured over them and they work on them and rework them and write them and rewrite them. And, and it's never done because it's not perfect. And the reality is it's never going to be perfect. Um, so we kind of stole the opposite approach where Typically for an album, we'll write 30 to 50 songs. And then amongst ourselves, we come up with our list. And then amongst the people we trust and love around us, they come up with their lists. And a lot of those tend to be the same song that everyone feels <laughs> passionately about because they're working in some element, you know? Um, and then, you know, Billy Bragg told us when we were just kids and we met him, he you know, basically said, you catch more flies with honey. And he was talking about the first anti-flag record being a bit abrasive and, and kind of hard to listen to and said, write a better fucking song if you want people to care about these things. And uh, we're consistently trying to write a better song. People will have expectations or people will have preconceived notions of what we should sound like or what type of song we should write. And my response is consistently, you know, if you liked die for the government or you like new kind of army or you like terror state for blood empire. Awesome. Those things ain't going anywhere. We made them. There they are. You can go listen to them any day of the week. What we're interested in is being better stewards of the craft of songwriting and, and being a better band and documenting the version of ourselves that we are today. Um, it's not interesting to me to go backwards because I'm not that person anymore. I can't write that song again. So, yeah, I mean, a little bit of all of those things, you know, you're, you're consistently trying better. I love the Beatles. I love the clash. I love pop music. And so um, I think that when you get into the pop sensibilities of the band, honing that craft is really important to us. Like I want you to be humming the chorus in your head, walking down the street and then later be like, Oh fuck, that song's about, something way heavier than that melody is allowing me to feel right now. And, um, you know, we know that the two and a half minute 
long punk song isn't going to have all of the answers in it. So we extrapolate on the ideas with the album art, with the booklet, et cetera, et cetera. But we also know that it's not the song that changes the world. It's the people that interact with the song and then change themselves. And that's how we advance as a society. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned there, you said the crazy sentence, Billy Bragg told us, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is mad, really. When you think about it, when you think about 15-year-old Chris joining anti-flag, anti-flag, Billy Bragg told you, do you remember meeting many of your heroes? Like, what was the first, what was the first one that really shook you? Yeah, I mean, it's wild. You know, Billy Bragg is someone we consider a mentor. Tom Morello is the mentor of the band. I mean, these are, these are the people, these are the reasons that we believe that there is value and power in art and music changing the culture and thus changing the world. I mean, so to get that type of um, friendship and, and, you know, mentoring, frankly, from them is, is, uh, it's unreal. Yeah, I mean, Billy Joe Armstrong is probably the reason that I'm here. Uh, like, I loved Green Day. Um, I had a cousin who gave me a cassette tape of the 39 Smooths. It had Bad Religion on one side and had Green Day on the other side. And I, I liked Bad Religion, but I couldn't understand what they were saying. And the lyrics <laughs> were complicated and I needed a dictionary. Um, and, uh, and then I heard Green Day on the other side. And I was like, okay, this is it. And then it wasn't really until they got famous that I saw them on TV. And when I saw that they were kids with bad teeth and pimples, I was like, oh, shit, you don't have to be beautiful to play music. Cool. I'm not beautiful. I can try. And it unlocked the door for me. So the first warp Tour that we did, the whole thing was the 2000 warp Tour. And I met Billy Joe the first day of that, that tour. Wow. And uh, I went up to him because I was like, this is my moment. I'm going to go express my gratitude to this person. And, you know, I said, Hey, what's up? I'm Chris from anti-flag. Uh, I love your band. And before I could even get into my kind of gushing, um, he turned to me and said, yo, you're an anti-flag. What, how are the politics of your band lining up with a corporate sponsored tour, like the warp tour? And he fucking grilled me with them, like, like no. straight up like, sellout <laughs> question. And I was like, yo. So immediately I was beyond nervous. I was meeting my hero. And then A knew enough about us to ask that type of question. So I, I believe that I rattled off like the stock, the boilerplate answer I was giving in the interviews at that time, which is, you know, obviously anti-flag is got an agenda and a message and the warp tour is happening with or without us. I think that we add a lot of value to this tour and we're going to use every opportunity we have to say the things we say. And then he kind of gave me a nod and said like, that's awesome. And I was like, I got to go. And then I ran and called every person <laughs> I knew and basically just said, Billy Joe knows who we are. Like, holy shit, you know? And subsequently, like I maybe have put that person on too high of a pedestal and I haven't like pursued any type of real relationship with them. You know, like we have a lot of friends and in inner circles and I probably could get his number, but uh, I don't want it. <laughs> it's like, it's like too, too much, you know, whereas like some of the other people, you know, like the Billy Braggs and the Morellos of the world are just so instantly, they were just so instantly aware and self-aware 
that it was it broke down that separation that barrier so quickly you know i learned so much from tom just interacting like little shit where there was there was a moment where someone had some political ideology or or some like i don't know way they were living and tom said something that that it wasn't necessarily inappropriate it just wasn't like in in line with what they were thinking and i heard tom morello from rage against the machine say oh i'm sorry i didn't know that and i was like what like we're allowed to not know everything like holy shit you know and just the, the humility of that moment was so eye-opening and so disarming to me that i was like this is a real person and mm. um and i had comparable things happen with billy bragg like like talking about writing a better song and when we did left field at Glastonbury, I was just standing on the side of the stage with Billy watching the acts that he had curated for the day. And you're just like, man, this person loves music the way I love music. And you're just like, okay, this is, this is real. But every time I've interacted with Billy Joe Armstrong, it's just like, I don't got nothing to say to you. And I run the fuck away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. I uh, love, we love, love these stories. Well, Chris, we've really enjoyed this conversation, but just a couple of uh, quick things while we, uh, wind down, uh, here. Obviously, you've got the new album out, Lies They Tell Our Children. Uh, it's had a great response online so far. But, um, of course, I wanted to talk about the fact that you haven't really done that many collaborations in the past, but then this album has yeah. so many. Album. I mean, se seven of the 11 tracks have guest features on there. Was that an idea of something you've wanted to do for a while? How did all that kind of come together? Yeah. So um, the quick, the quick version of this is that I'm also a big hip hop fan and I've, I've, I've loved that. I wish truthfully that we were less archaic in the way we make our albums because the initial idea was to do it more like a hip hop record where you're writing a track at a time, you're dropping it. And then the album is growing and changing as it comes. And before you know it, you've got the 11 or 13 songs you need. And then, and then it goes out into the world. We still can't record that way because we are grandpas. And it's like, you know, you, we're still doing all the tracks at once. It would have been awesome to, to, to make a record that could be timely in the moment, you know, and maybe someday we will be efficient enough to do that. But with the way we tour and the way we come home and kind of need the space from each other and the space from the work, it didn't provide that opportunity. So the compromise was to record the full record, find places that really paid homage to these people that are inspiring to us that we've either toured with or just are aware of and give them an opportunity to, to make the track theirs. And, um, so that's what we did. You know, you got a song like Fight of Our Lives where the bridge is clearly stolen from Rise Against. I'm like, Tim, sing it. <laughs> you, you can't be, yeah, you can't be accused of theft if you've got the man's voice over it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there you go. Um, oh. And so that, that happened a bunch. You know, that, that's pretty much the bulk of those features, you know, like, like, really leaning into the people that inspired them. And then the other half is these like, you know, Trey Burt and Ashrita from Pink Shift, younger artists that maybe we're not stealing from in the literal sense, but we are emotionally stealing from them. And so we're able to 
bring them in on that emotive level. And so, yeah. And then, and then, you know, I think that coming out of the pandemic, we released 2020 vision, we played like 20 shows on it and then the world shut down. So this way of releasing and having all of these guests is kind of like a reconnection with the world. And, um, you know, it was, it was tactical. We like, we did it on purpose that way to alleviate some of the suffering we felt from releasing a piece of music that we barely got to share with the world. So, um, some of it was, was just us wanting to prohibit that from happening again. Was there anybody, um, that you tried who couldn't make it for the record? Yeah, there were two people that we reached out to both of which had new albums or other things that they were releasing at the same time, because that was one of the things that we were very upfront with. Like we had the schedule of release, we had everything. And so we would go and be like, yo, here's the track. I need your take by this time. The song will come out at this time. Like, so we were pretty well organized in that sense as to what was going to happen. And so the two that couldn't do it, one was they were on tour and um, had no way of, of recording anything um, for us. And then the other was like, yo, this song you want me on. I literally have a song coming out that same day. Can we, <laughs> I can't do that. Can we do a different one? And I was like, no, this is how it's got it. Like, so those were our no's. Um, but um, it's, you know, it's pretty wild that we pulled it off. I mean, there's eight music videos, one of which is coming out in a couple of weeks. The last one, eight different guests over seven songs. It was a lot of managing. And as you know, um, you guys are talking to people in bands all the time. They're probably late. They're probably uh, <laughs> not very well organized and on task. So um, it is, it's like herding cats, you know, um, but we, we got the thing done. Yeah. Well, so, some of them don't show up either. We've had yeah, that problem exactly. already. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still, um, yeah, we're still waiting for Vil Valo. It's been three days. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> But honestly, it's, uh, it's a great idea, and I, I love the record. But with all that, Chris, I mean, you got a busy 2023 ahead of you. There's loads of tour dates already announced. You're obviously going to be celebrating the 30th year of the band throughout. But uh, is there anything else you want to let the listeners know about? Anything worth plugging or just a message you'd like to share with people before we uh, wrap this up? Um, no, I think we're all good. Um, I'm hoping that we'll be in the UK, uh, at some point coming up here soon. If not this summer, definitely in the fall. And, um, other than that, you know, like life is hard. The world is hard. You want to be a revolutionary in 2023. Just be kind. Everything out there is, is a status quo of violence and bigotry and pain. And we're just trying to do our best to alleviate suffering however we can with whatever we can. And so um, that's my only little bit of only tidbit I have is just like, truthfully, this, this moment is one where we'll all be better off if we are treating the people in our lives with kindness and dignity. And um, I think we'll get a lot further and hopefully Next time we talk, we're talking about much funner, nicer shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Fingers yeah, crossed. Fingers but yeah, crossed. Chris, that was that was um absolutely beautiful. Um and yeah, thank you very, 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 very much for your time. Thank you very much for the music and for the inspiration over the years. And yeah, thank you for giving us this wonderful, wonderful chat. We appreciate it very, very much. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's great to meet you, Morgan. It's great to see you again, Sean, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Yes. Woo! Fucking hell, I was loud. I love a bit of Chris Doss. I love a bit of Chris too. I love a bit of Chris Die. Yes, you might think that's three different <laughs> people. It's not. It's the same fella you just listened to. What a brilliant chat that was. Yes, he's just such an icon for punk rock over the last few decades, I do believe. And anti flag going for this long, still making killer albums, still making killer music, touring and playing shows like this still were back in the day is insane. As I mentioned, I've always uh, loved seeing him live and all the shapes and jumps Chris can get into. He can he can jump really high, that man. It's a skill of his own. <laughs> Chris, what do you reckon the highlight of having a 30-year career is? One fella reckons I can jump real high and that's all I've ever wanted. <laughs> fucking hell. Yes, he's brilliant. He's a great songwriter. He's a great singer. His fucking movement on stage is second to none. Absolutely lovely, lovely human. As you've just heard, check out Anti Flags. Anti Flags, new record. Lies they tell our children. And again, you can jump really high, which is always the highlight. Fuck uh, they're yeah. going to be. They're you can't be hear it on the record. You can't hear it how high he jumps on the record, by the way. <laughs> they're going to be touring a lot. In uh, throughout the year, which you can actually see him jump really high, uh, announced a bunch of shows with the Bouncing Souls in the States for April, October, and December. Uh, there's a few gaps for some European festivals, so hopefully we'll see him there. And they've just been announced for Slam Dunk in Italy because for some reason, Slam Dunk's having a vacation on a that's, beach that's in other bits of, of Europe as hey, well. As well, I got as a question. One. I got a question. Why hasn't Italy got its own fucking festival? <laughs> why hasn't France got its own? Like, why do we, why, why is it like a slam dunk somewhere else? <laughs> mad, like, it's fucking mad to me, but hey, well done to Ben Ray. Get that fucking, get them francs in. Oh, it's not francs anymore, is it? Euros. Euros. Jesus Christ, it ain't been francs for about 25 years. <laughs> get them Deutschmarks in, son. Get them fucking, what was the Italian one? Lira. Lira, man. Get that Lira, Ben Ray. Wait. Uh, well, speaking of uh, different money as well, if you'd like to support this podcast <laughs> in any way, shape, the plug. We've been <laughs> doing Worst this for so segment. long. We have run out of plugs to try and make the Patreon link sound just normal. So, oh, hey, if you like, Please. if you enjoyed this, if you laughed, yeah, A, follow yeah. us on our social media, at Sapnapod, on must Twitter do. and Instagram. That's a must. B, share this episode with all your friends on your social media, you know, in your stories, tag us. That would help a lot. But the most important thing would be to support us via our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash sapnin. There's loads of extra content and bonuses over there for you to check out, but also a bunch of people who are the loveliest of all time and they'll hang out with you and they'll go to gigs with you and they'll talk about your favorite tracks and they'll talk about all sorts. They've done it a lot lately. A bunch of them went to see Holden Absence on this current tour they're doing. So be part of it at patreon.com forward slash sapnin. Yes, and if you can't afford to join our Patreon, that's absolutely fair enough. I completely understand. We're living through the cost, this fucking cost of living crisis because of the Tory cunts. Yeah, if you can't, if you want to join the Patreon but you can't afford it, do us a favor and just follow us on everything and share everything. That helps. And right now, I've got to give a massive shout out to the elite members of our podcast. They are the top tiers. 
And they are as follows. Thank you very much. Kylie Wheeler, Mayumi Liwoe, Janelle Castan, Paul Urshfield, Tony Michael, Dilly Grimwood, Kelly Ewan, Scarlett Charlton, Natasha Morris, Emma Barber, Nathan Croshaw, Mitch Perry, Sammy G, Kat Besson, Dana Lasnava, Jenny Robinson, Murray Grimwood, Scott Jones, Amy Dawson, Amy Louise, Stuart McNaught, M. Evans Roberts, Stephen Aston, Caroline Robson, Kate Patak, Louis Cook, Danny Eaton, Carl Pendlebury, Martina McManus, Jenny Munster, James McNaught, Kelly Cannon, Emily Perry, Jason Aredia, John and Emma, Craig Harris, Kalila Keane, Ollie Amesbury, Adam King of the Gospel Law, Josh, my doctor said that I might die because I accidentally consumed clay. I'm shitting bricks, to be honest. Crisp. Thank you very much. Alice Wood, Reese Bowling, Kit Stevenson, Kyle David Smith, and last by no means least, Connor Lewis! Woo! We appreciate every single person in the Patreon. Thank you for taking your time uh, and listening to this podcast. It does mean the world. And we'll be back next week and every Friday with some special guests, some laughs, and mayhem in between, probably. Next week's guest, I think, um, tells us about a treasure map that they did in 1999 <laughs> which i don't believe has been solved or found it's fried my brain since finding out i thought about going to where they said it was anyway unbelievable next week's episode this week's episode was great thank you again to chris from anti-flag i will pronounce it the british way because we invented the words anti-flag um shout out to sean Goulden if he listens to this he might do he probably fucking won't but that's fair enough and uh that's it Zathman! That gap was perfect. You're listening to Sapling Podcast with Sean Smith and Morgan Richards. Thank you very much for downloading this podcast or streaming it or I don't I don't know what else you do with podcasts. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>